To the Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. I am joined today by Chris Fenton, the author of Feeding the Dragon, an excellent new book looking at the efforts of Hollywood, the NBA, and other entertainment industries to get a foothold in China. Um, uh, Chris, we we were we were texting a little bit back and forth this weekend about the uh, kind of terrible box office performance of Mulan uh, in China, and you you said that. It, it felt very much like a sequel to Feeding the Dragon. What did you mean by that? And uh, what what exactly has has happened to Disney over there? I mean, they, they this has to be a real kick in the pants for them. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on, Sonny. I'm a big follower of yours, and I love the fact that you're putting attention on this book and on this sort of crazy geopolitical sort of turmoil that's taking Hollywood by storm. Um, the sequel to... Feeding the Dragon, my book sort of reference was the fact that even when we were in the book trying to make movies like Looper or Iron Man 3, um, there was sort of this belief uh, by everybody that was involved with those movies, and there were a lot of us, obviously, that we were just trying to get the job done um, in the movie business, which is making big tentpole movies, or in the case of Looper, a $35 million film that actually performed really well there are a lot of moving parts and there are a lot of challenges and a lot of things that you have to address in regards to just simply getting a movie done. But when you make the movie between two different superpowers, and back then that was essentially the year it's 2011, 2012, 2013, there were all kinds of crazy antagonists that were constantly competing forces in us getting the job done or getting the job done successfully. So in the case of Iron Man 3, which sort of has a lot of relevancy to what's going on with Mulan. We had antagonists from critics on both sides of the Pacific, both in the U.S. and China. Um, and by the way, in terms of Mulan, you have critics all over Southeast Asia and in Europe and Australia chiming in on this situation too. We had regulators on both uh, in both countries. We had government leaders in both countries. We had journalists in both countries. And we had the film communities and the public in both uh, countries that were all weighing in on essentially what we were trying to do, which was create this uh, content that was an exchange of commerce and culture between the two countries that was also trying to thread the needle of creating something that was both relevant to the Chinese audience as well as the US audience and as well as to the global audience. So very difficult needle to thread with lots of competing forces to getting the job done. And as we've seen with Mulan, getting the movie done was really just part of the problem. Now we're seeing all these different challenges pop up, which have been around for a while, going back to um, more than a year ago with the Hong Kong protesters and the lead actor and actress coming out in support of the CCP, leading into the Daryl Morey of the Houston Rockets tweet and sort of this infringement of First Amendment rights that Hollywood and and uh, the sports industry seem to be so complicit of in order to get business done in the CC, you know, in, in China. And then that led all the way into obviously um, our elected officials jumping on the case against the NBA and Hollywood, bringing through this Trump trade deal, which has started the first part of this year, then the COVID issue, then all the other geopolitical events between the two countries and TikTok and so on, leading up finally to that card 
that uh, thank the Xinjiang province, different entities and various other um, components that are involved with these atrocious uh, violations against Uyghur rights and and obviously human rights. Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny. The uh, one of the things that you said to me was that this is very much about loss of face for China, right? That this is the you know the whole the whole point of their working with the American film industry, right, is to put forth a good image of China to kind of get their uh, viewpoint out there. But then when we have everybody in the United States talking instead about Uyghur concentration camps for the week uh, of release up to Mulan, it it, it causes them, um, uh, I, I don't know, a reputational damage. Um, and I, I was just curious if you could talk about that in relation to the film industry and the film business and how yeah. that those those how you balance those two things. Okay, and then I'll also relate it to how it yet again is sort of a sequel to the book, right? Um, the the face issue I think is completely obvious right now as we've seen sort of this clampdown on media coverage of Mulan in China, right? We've seen reports, Reuters and various other um, reporters came out and talked about this sort of cram down on media coverage of the of the movie, and everybody's going, well, why would that even happen? And part of the reason is because this this controversy that has erupted, not the Hong Kong issue, but the Xinjiang issue, is something that the CCP was looking at and going, why can't Disney just keep that under wraps? Like, why has this gotten so out of control to the point where now we have to deal with it on our own soil? So mm -hmm. there's that face issue. And in, in the book that I wrote, we saw something similar happen. In 2012, the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission of the United States, um, in, launched an investigation to all the Hollywood studios and China Film Group's own leader, a guy named Han Song Ping, in regards to potential foreign corrupt practice, uh, foreign corrupt act, uh, foreign corrupt practices act violations by the Hollywood studios in regards to getting business done in that market. The CCP saw that as, wait a minute, you're saying that the only reason Hollywood's able to do the things they're doing is because they're bribing us. That's ridiculous. We're a capitalistic country too. We do it all the right way. And now you're actually targeting one of our own CCP leaders, Han Sung Ping, as part of that investigation. That is a face loss for us. And what we saw was they did a massive cram down on day and date releases. They stacked the deck with similar movies when they did allow them to be released. They would be three months late during 2012. So it had already been pirated. And we saw all kinds of problems for Hollywood after that investigation was launched. The same thing happened with Josh Hawley, Senator Hawley, writing that very public letter. And then days later, that bipartisan group of both congressional members and members of the, the Senate also writing a letter in very similar sort of stature and reason to Bob Chapek of Disney, the CEO of Disney. Both were very public, both caused a loss of face, and both have caused Mulan, quite frankly, to lose a lot of the wind to the back that they had in that market. And that has resulted in lower box office returns. Hmm. You know, it's interesting. One one question that comes up a lot when I talk about this issue with people is what what can actually be done, right? What can actually be done to try and uh, negate some of the influence that China holds over uh, over over the Hollywood studios? And uh, it, it almost sounds to me like you're saying that something as, frankly, 
like as toothless and innocuous as a letter from from senators, things that go out all the time, right? These kind of letters of condemnation or, you know, asking for for better practices or whatever um, have a real impact on the Chinese uh, the Chinese government and the gatekeepers over there. It, it, it's something that they look at and take very seriously and can do real damage to American studios, uh, at least in terms of, you know, monetary investment in China. That's a hundred percent the case. I mean, the fact is, yes, they are thin skin. And one of the main reasons the CCP is very thin skin is their number one priority is to keep 1.4 billion people just happy enough that they don't revolt. They don't want another Tiananmen Square situation. So anytime there's something that might rock the boat that creates some sort of skepticism, whether the leadership is right, whether their form of government is right, whether things are actually being provided in the basic sort of essential category that those 1.4 billion people need, the CCP gets nervous, right? And they need to be able to cram down on that stuff. So when something that comes out that sort of says, hey, look, the United States of America, along with the rest of the Western world is uh, anti what's going on in Xinjiang province. And here's a letter that's addressed to one of the most iconic businesses in the world, the CEO of Disney. Um, that's something that rocks the boat a bit. It seems sort of ridiculous. And we know it's probably a lot more bark than bite. But it does affect the thin skin of the CCP, and it creates retaliation. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, uh, you know, I, I, I am curious uh, what you th- how how should how should Disney have handled this? I mean, should they just not have mentioned the Xinjiang province at all? Should they have just like avoided all of those thanks at the end of the credits? Wouldn't that also possibly be seen as an insult? But not thanking their you know Chinese. Benefactors, I'm I'm curious because it, it really does feel like a very thin tightrope for them to walk, and maybe there is no no good answer for Disney from a business and PR perspective. Well, it's a it's a great question, and in fact, a lot of journalists and definitely politicians don't even ask that question. They would just rather create the clickbait of either a soapbox stance or an article that gets circulated around a large amount of people that are reading it. Um, That tends to be the motivation. Your question is actually one of constructiveness, right? Like what should they have done or what should they be doing? Um, This is where I get a little bit unicorn and rainbow on it, but I actually think it can 100% get done, right? Let's just look, and I always like looking at the most macro view of a problem or the way an entity operates or the way somebody thinks. The big issue right now, the pressure that's on Hollywood is not, hey, Hollywood, fix the atrocities against the Uyghurs, fix the encroachment of China on Hong Kong 27 years early. That's not what anybody's asking Hollywood to do, and it's not what anybody's asking the NBA to do. Instead, what people are saying, is we're fed up with the hypocrisy about how you utilize your freedom of speech rights here in America, that those very important First Amendment rights, to speak up against various other wrongs, yet you're not speaking up against the wrongs of China. And I think as long as the Hollywood community and the sports community can simply just utilize First Amendment rights to talk against atrocities around the world and particularly in China in this instance, the pressure 
on Hollywood and the sports community will severely abate and you'll get a much lesser sort of, hey, why are you doing business in China sort of argument and say um, instead, hey, we know you're doing business there. We appreciate you speaking up on behalf of things. Hopefully that creates geopolitical pressure with all the powers that be to maybe quash those problems someday, right? So mm-hmm. how, how do we do that, right? That's the question, right? Because if Disney... And I agree, unfortunately, with what Disney's tactic is right now, which is to stay quiet. Just hope the news cycle takes this thing away and they just move on to the way things have been going. One of the problems is they have a face issue in in China, so I'm sure their China operation is working on trying to fix that right now with the CCP. But let's pretend that doesn't even exist. What do they really want to do is hope this news cycle, hope this political pressure, hope all that stuff just sort of disappears and it goes back to business as usual. My feeling is it's not. And if Hollywood doesn't get proactive, leadership in DC is going to get react, make them reactive to something. We're going to see a hearing on the Hill with C-suites from Hollywood coming in and having to testify, et cetera, et cetera. And as we know, that just becomes a grandstanding event and a bunch of plead the fifths and nothing really happens. What I believe can occur is that China is like an adolescent. They had a curfew of 10 o'clock at night. Now suddenly we're waking up to it and we're realizing they're not getting home until 3 a.m. How did that happen? Well, no adults have been in the room pressing back on things that they've been encroaching on. Yes, they've encroached on censorship issues for their own market since the beginning of time, right? Mm -hmm. But we've been censoring content for other markets for a long time, whether it's Japan or Korea or the Middle East, et cetera. Where they've really encroached recently is on this idea of controlling narrative outside of their country, controlling the fact that they don't want anybody around the world talking about Hong Kong and the rights of the protesters. They're talking about how they don't want anybody knowing about the Taiwanese flag on the back of Tom Cruise's jacket in Top Gun. They don't want anybody talking about the atrocities in, in, you know, in the Xinjiang province outside of the country. The bottom line is they don't want a revolution in China and hearing that stuff might create some unrest or whatever it is, but they can firewall it inside of their country. So why do they care what we say outside? Because they want to control the narrative everywhere. And that is wrong. So we need to back Disney simply with the idea that they can say, hey, look, we made a mistake. We should have not shot there, regardless of whether it was a minute of footage or whatever it was. That was wrong for us. On top of it, to symbolically recognize these terrible entities that are doing wrong things in Xinjiang, we should have not done too. We stand by the rights of humans all around the world. That was wrong. And we stand by the rights of Uyghurs and we stand against what's happening to them. That's the statement they should be able to make. Now, if they make it by themselves or Bob Shapek makes that statement by himself, it becomes a sacrificial lamb, lone wolf situation where Bob Shapek is replaced by some other CEO that will put his head in the sand or she'll put her, her head in the sand and not say a thing. And Disney will be replaced and they'll be removed from the Shanghai theme park and Universal's Beijing park will suddenly now also have a Shanghai park and Universal <laughs> will take all of their slots yeah right? It just becomes whack-a-mole. That's where we can't put up with it. So if retaliation occurs, 
all of the Hollywood community, I mean all the studios and all the partners from the IMAXs and the Hasbros and the various other Activisions, et cetera, need to stand firm with Disney and say, hey, you're encroaching on the First Amendment rights of this country. We would not exist as companies if we did not have those rights to begin with. We wouldn't exist if we didn't have all the other values and principles of the United States of America. If you're retaliating against Disney, you're retaliating against all of us. And you're not going to get any of our content. You're not going to get any of our goods and services until you rectify the situation with Disney. That is the pushback that adults in the room can do against the adolescents of China that have suddenly gotten a 3 a.m. curfew. Mm -hmm. And it will work because we're seeing it work with wolf warrior diplomacy as Australia, certain European countries, and China have pushed back on this narrative that they've been putting out around the world through their foreign ministry that COVID wasn't their fault. It started in you know the U.S. and they're actually curing it or whatever it is, right? We know they're practical. We know they will retreat if they're pushed back. We just haven't exercised the plan of pushback with any sort of leverage or united front for years. And it's mm -hmm. time to do it now. And that's the squeaky wheel I'm being. And that's the soapbox that I'll stand on and say, Disney, you need to do the right thing, but only do it if you have unification from everybody else that's going to stand behind you. And mm -hmm. if they, if you don't, then I don't blame you. I'm not going to tell you to go do what's the right thing to do because you're going to sure. jeopardize all that business. Sure. I mean, I think that's I think that's fair, right? It's not it's uh, it would it's it's a little pie in the sky to say Disney should stand alone and take billions in losses uh, if Universal and Warner's and 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 the rest won't won't back them up. You know, you you uh, I, reading Feeding the Dragon was was very interesting because you were there kind of on the front lines of the opening up of China to the Hollywood market. I mean, the stories about Looper um, and Iron Man 3 are are really fascinating uh, man on the ground, man on the street uh, type perspectives of these things. And I, I, I was wondering if you could explain to my audience, which again is very interested in the business of Hollywood and how that all works, um, what levers China has used financially, economically, um, and and in business to try and enforce these um, these these the censorship these changes these these requests. Well, first of all, just simply allowing a piece of content into their market to be monetized, right? Like monetization of content is the key when it comes to addressing what you need to get done in that market, right? They, it's not about hey, can can House of Cards be seen in China? Because guess what? It's seen in China. And not only was it seen in China, it made a lot of it, it, it had a lot of eyeballs watching it, but it made zero money for the US studios involved with it. It was just let in, pirated, because the CCP loved the fact that it showed how dysfunctional our government was and all kinds of other things, but it was not monetized. How do you monetize that market is the key. And only a certain amount of movies are allowed to be monetized in that market any given year. Right now, it's roughly 32 movies. It's fluid. You know, you'll find some years it's 35 and some years it's 30. If you go back to 2012, it was only about 20 to 22 movies. So it's improved. And then on top of it, the amount of movies that are let in is very minimal. And then the amount of box office they're allowed to get is super minimal too. They're allowed 25% of every dollar that's made by a uh, by a movie in that 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 market which is probably half of what the global average is say about mm -hmm. 50%. Now that's also improved since 2012. 
when we did looper this the it was a sliding scale of somewhere between 13 and 17 percent depending on how much it grossed so it has had some improvements but not a lot so where the 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 issues are in regards to that market is one can you get it in to be monetized and that's where the premeditated censorship is done where you know you don't want to have china is the villain you don't want to have chinese bad bad guys or bad girls in it you don't want to have tibet mentioned in it or taiwan or tiananmen square in it you want to avoid all the sensitivities that you're aware of that that market has in order to know at least you have a shot of being one of those 32 movies that can be monetized the second thing is how do you put the wind to your back to make sure you're one of those 32 well, that's the nuance that we did with Looper, right? We wanted to create, and remember, I go back to that, the CCP's goal is just to keep 1.4 billion people just happy enough that they don't revolt. Well, part of that is to give them all of what they need and some of what they want, and also that belief that they can aspire to get more and build up into a middle class, or if they're in the middle class, get to the upper class. So it needs to show that it's leading this country into these worlds of opportunity for all those people. And that creates contentment among the masses, right? Looper was one of those things where we looked at that macro goal and we said, well, how do we make the CCP look really good so that there is no revolt? Um, and obviously, it's just one piece of content, and there's lots of things that they have to think mm -hmm. about in regards to that directive, but let's just apply it to one thing, right? Number one was, well, let's showcase China in the future. If you've seen the movie, part of the movie takes place 40 years in the future. And in that future, we switched the location from France to China, and we created China to be the mecca of where people wanted to li live. We worked with the Shanghai municipal government to design the ultimate, most modern and glistening skyline possible for Shanghai, something they could showcase, not just in that movie, but in their municipal hall to people that are looking to bring businesses or travel services or whatever it is to that country. So we created this definition of where do you want to be globally in the world in 40 years to be China? And in fact, we even used lines between Jeff Daniels and Joseph Gordon-Levitt where I'm from the future, damn it. You want to live in China. I mean, flat out, you could call them infomercials for China in the future, but they also work to make a better movie because that was a mm -hmm. very high tested moment. Um, the second thing we did was we used the movie to create middle-class jobs or create the template to grow more middle-class jobs. How did we do that? Well, we brought over below-the-line crews that are best in class to train their below-the-line crews, which were just fledgling and trying to understand how to make good movies. And we did that skill set exchange and they shadowed us and we showed them how to shoot large scale you know, productions in various parts of Shanghai and the outer areas. So after we left, we didn't just pick up all our equipment and take off. We left these skill sets, these processes, these things they learned from a world-class film business, Hollywood, mm -hmm. so they could apply them to their own film industry, which will eventually bring more middle-class jobs in so they can create their own uh, film industry that satisfies their consumer, which, by the way, is one of the problems we're facing right now. A third thing was showcasing their talent. 
right? We had Summer Ching in the movie who played the wife of Bruce Willis. She was a big actress at the time. It was very, the, the Chinese were, had lots of pride in the fact that she was in that movie. And she was showcased, not just on the one sheet there in, in, in China, but also around the world. Now, one of the issues we can get into was why were there mm. two cuts of the movie? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to, I, I, I was going to ask about that next. There were so uh, for for people who are unaware, there were there were two. They they actually shot a bunch of extra footage uh, for the Chinese cut of the film, which uh, led to some issues with the the Chinese government, right? Yeah. Well, Ryan Johnson, who's an amazing filmmaker, and I was blessed to work with him. He was trying to make the best movie possible, even though we convinced him to put all this China stuff in and everything. A lot of that convincing was also saying, Hey, this is going to make a movie that's at least as good as it was before or better. That was always the, the sort of threshold he needed in order to sign off on a lot of stuff we did. Now, when the final cut that he thought was the right cut from the movie came in, a lot of the China footage was taken out because there was just, it felt like the movie was a little slow in Shanghai. Maybe there were some extra scenes that didn't really mm. need to be in there. And obviously you're trying to cut the movie to be as quick and fun as possible. So after losing many battles in regards to trying to put more extended footage into the film from China, because we were getting pressure from the CCP to have more of that stuff in, in the movie, we ultimately came up with the idea of, and this is different than a censored cut of a movie versus the real cut of the movie. We came up with this idea of creating an extended bonus version of the movie just for the Chinese market, which would be the China cut that they saw that was very different than the cut of the movie that was seen around the world because it had an extra, and I forgot the exact amount of time. I think it was like five or six minutes of footage in it. And of course, mm -hmm. all the footage was Chinese. So it felt to the average Chinese who was looking to feel proud about this movie that instead of just, you know, whatever it was, 10 minutes of China footage in the movie, there was actually 16 minutes or whatever the amount was. So um, that worked great in theory, except as we were getting closer to the release of the movie, it was found out that there were two cuts of the film and that created all kinds of different antagonists that got involved and, and made us bite our nails up until the very last moment. Mm. And, you know, I, I think one thing a lot of people don't realize when they uh, hear about the failure or, you know, the 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 non-excellent uh, performance of Mulan in China, right, is that the, the Chinese government does actually keep a pretty strict control over how much something can be promoted. If they give the thumbs down, you know, the reviews come in and, and they're bad. Um, and I, I'm just curious from your perspective, again, as somebody who has has uh, worked on a number of these movies, what what is a what is what is that worry like? B, how do you try and combat it? C, is there anything you can do to combat it? Is it just, you know, uh, uh, the, if if the thumb the thumbs down comes in down, uh, you know, are you are you screwed? Yeah, I think. Well, first of all, I'm not Chinese, and China and China conversations, especially ones with the CCP, I am only sort of aware of in in terms of how an American can understand them, right? So there's a lot of nuance that I don't know, and there's a glass ceiling that a lot of people sort of hit there. But what mm -hmm. I can tell you is we go back to sort of the macro, right? And 
if you look at, and I talk about it in the book, Django Unchained, for instance, right? The, the, that movie got approved to be released during a national holiday vacation. Somehow, whether it was Sony or some, you know, vendor that Sony was using, was able to get Quentin Tarantino fans inside the CCP to sign off on letting that movie get in. And they actually released the film. Now, the problem was it wasn't a full rule by committee and it wasn't completely instructed all the way up the hierarchy that that movie was getting in and why. So the story goes that there was a huge line outside of Django Unchained in Beijing and there was a guy in his Audi A6 with the driver that was a CCP high level official. And he goes, what's the line for? And the driver says, oh, it's a whatever Quentin Tarantino movie. And he's like, well, why did we let it in? And he's like, I have no idea. So he calls down, you know, because everything is is top down there, calls down to CFG and says, hey, I don't understand why is this movie and what it do for us. And they didn't have an ex- they had no explanation, none. Mm-hmm. They didn't have that bullet point. They didn't have that make America great again or or <laughs> Black Lives Matter or whatever that that simple sort of this is why it's in. Right. Mm-hmm. And immediately all the screens went dark with the Django Unchained and changed with some other movie right? Because there wasn't that easy bullet point as to why it was in. So when it comes to the uncertainty of how the CCP will operate and the fact that a force majeure moment could literally happen at any given point in time, the best way to address that fear and try to calm and, you know, and essentially mitigate that probability is to simply have all the reasons why whatever that form of content is in the market is there, right? Why it was approved. So for Looper, if that same call came down the chain to that one person and said, hey, by the way, time travel's banned. Hey, by the way, there was drug use in Shanghai, like in this movie. Why was this movie allowed in? That official that was called, surprisingly, could literally go, it was let in because it allowed us to portray Shanghai as the city of the future, not just for China, but for the world. It created all kinds of below the line jobs. We actually used this, the United, the Americans for all this skill set and process and, and various other skill set exchanges that quite frankly, and if they want to say it this way, they can say we stole it and now we're using it for X, Y, and Z. And then on top of it, we got to showcase one of our hot actresses in the movie, which is really a source of pride for a lot of the Chinese public. That's why that movie is in. And then the guy above him goes, oh, okay, that makes sense. Keep going. Right? Yeah. Simple definition, right? That That is the key. Like with Twilight... Why did you let in that movie after we rejected it? Because it's about vampires and undead, and that's a, that's a censored issue. Well, the company that's now distributing and marketing it came in and said, we're going to take out most of the vampire stuff, and we're going to market this movie like the beloved movie Titanic, and the movie is going to be about forbidden love that's a la Romeo and Juliet romance, and they're marketing it that way to the public, and they've removed all the stuff that we felt was really objectionable, and it's actually a really feel-good sort of forbidden love type of story. That's why we let it in. Oh, okay. Right. That's you know. that's what it comes down to. What are you giving them as an arsenal to be able to defend why they made a decision? And if they don't have that defense, it's gone. Yeah. You know, uh, one, one of the one of the things that jumped out at me in your book was just a little moment, but one that feels very, very 
important to uh, basically anybody who cares about intellectual property stuff, which is when when word came down that Iron Man 3 was going to be a co-production that the Chinese government had signed off on it, the MCU pirate stores had vanished, right? The, 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 the uh, vendors selling the bootleg DVDs, no more Iron Man's, no more, you know, Avengers or whatever, right? It was it was all uh, properly licensed goods from that point on. Um, what what does that actually uh, like? I, I'm curious. I mean, I don't know. Just from from the perspective of a uh, a filmmaker and an executive, what what does that sort of uh, support from the government mean for the bottom line? Well, it's massive. Once again, it goes into are you, is your stuff in the market? Yeah, for the most part, it mostly always is. But is it being monetized? That's the big question. So Marvel stuff was all over the place. You could see it in a black market, whether it was the forms of content they had or the consumer products and figurines or whatever it was. But what's interesting is that any sort of Western form of content or IP that the populace can see is getting some sort of marketing push or promotional push. And it's not the government that's pushing that marketing and stuff, but the fact that the government has allowed access for whoever owns that IP or whoever is putting out that content is allowing them access to promote and market it, right? That's very unusual for a Western form mm -hmm. of content. Like that's seen as, as propaganda from the West. So the populace sees that and goes, well, wait a minute, that's interesting I have never seen that advertised before, but now it seems to be okay to be advertised. I better stop selling that stuff because it seems like the government's behind it and I'll start selling this other stuff. And that's what we saw. So, um, you know, of course, there's always certain piracy going on at all times about everything, but the blatant stores, the ones that were in the prime areas, like in, 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 in San Leiton, behind the opposite house, there was this great pirated store right there, like in, in broad daylight and the cops walk by it and all that kind of stuff. Now, when there's government officials coming in from the United States that happen to be staying at the opposite house or whatever, you see the thing shut down temporarily, but it opens back up. Everybody knows it's there. Um, they don't want to be selling stuff that the government seems to be supporting in some way. So that just all disappears. And the same thing happened in U-Town across from where our offices were right in the central business district. I saw that go away. I'm sure in small towns or whatever, you still find it. But in the obvious spots, especially the ones where probably they're monetized really well, you see that disappear. And that's a really important aspect of the whole thing. It's like, if you can sell properly to the CCP, then they're going to allow you access to their consumer and that consumer is going to know that the only reason why you have access to them is because the CCP allowed it. Mm. I'm going to ask a speculative question here. Uh, I'm asking you to put on your guessing hat. Um, the, you know, uh, American theaters are still shut down in many large cities. Audiences are very nervous about going back to the theaters. You know, there, we, there, we had a poll um, uh, the Harris poll put a question in about theaters uh, earlier this month. 70% of people still think it's unsafe. So American theaters are in kind of bad shape right now. Chinese theaters are opening up uh, and they're putting up big numbers uh, for, for Chinese movies. Mulan didn't do great. Tenet did okay, whatever. Um, I, 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 here's my question. I'm sorry, there was a lot of preamble there, but here's here's my question. Given the state of the American theatrical uh, 
business. And given the state of the Chinese theatrical business, is there a real risk that China is going to end up coming out of COVID much more powerful than it was before even? I cuz this is this is what I fear is that, you know, the the studios are going to look around the world and say, "Well, we can still make 100 million dollars on a movie in China. You know, maybe we should focus more on making stuff that's good for them and not for not for American audiences who d- frankly don't want to come back yet." Well, um to answer that question, I do think if you're talking about is that going to make China come out of this better than the U.S., I think you're asking in terms of the way Hollywood looks at that market. And I don't have to guess. I'm going to say yes, 100%. I mean, even if they didn't come out of COVID faster than us or whatever it is, the habit and the excitement about going to a movie theater has just sort of gotten started. I mean, people have been excited in the first tier cities for at least a decade or two, second tier, it's catching on really fast and getting big. Third tier, it's just starting. Like It is a habit that has caught on and is only getting better and more rabid. And when you look at how few screens were even available and the fact that the 800, and this is where Disney has a hard time saying, oh, well, COVID affected the performance of Mulan. Mm -hmm. That's why it's only going to make $40 million overall. Well, it seems sort of a little hard to make that argument when the 800 makes 10 times that amount, right? They're right. almost at 400 right, right. and even 10, it's done better, right? So the the bottom line is no matter what, I was, a sh- I mean, I was certain in my head that the, the, the cinematic theatrical experience in China was going to bounce back and eventually get to where it was pre-COVID and then keep building. Um, Whereas I think you probably know the U.S. market even better than I do. I think we were sort of nervous about the theatrical experience even pre-COVID. And now COVID has just made it that much more damaging in regards to that fragile habit that people had. So I don't know how it's going to bounce back, but I don't have high hopes for it. So China, that market for theatrical business is going to be a major issue and something that Hollywood needs to pay attention to and figure out how to cater to. I think the one thing Mulan has shown is that China makes their own shit pretty damn well, right? And in fact, they learn from us not only how to make it well and tell the stories well and make them super relevant, but also tell them in a huge scaled up manner the way that we do with certain tentpoles. The 800 is a perfect example of that. So I might argue that what Hollywood should do is get back to the basics, get back to the basics of taking Western IP and making the best stories possible. And if they're thinking about the China market, be premeditated, and I know hawks are going to crush me for this, but be premeditated around the sensitivities of that China market and just deal with them at the very inception part so that somewhere down the road, you don't have to censor yourself in a much more public fashion and become a target of everybody, right? Like It's much mm-hmm. easier to just think about it at the beginning and not make Red Dawn with the Chinese villain rather than to go mm-hmm. make the movie and then have to change it, right? Like Everybody needs to be smarter than yeah. just American idiots. Um, yeah. But that's See, this- <laughs> but, but then I was going to say is like if you make great movies with great IP, Marvel shows the potential of it, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and yes, you have the Shang-Chi and the different Dr. Strange issues and that kind of stuff. Hopefully we can mitigate that controversy. But if they just go and make 
Avengers, you know, you can make $650 million in that market without doing all the stupid thank yous to the Xinjiang province and casting Chinese people and all that kind of stuff. Just do what you do best, Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, mm. I see some hope there if we stay where our sweet spot is. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, uh, I'm, I'm a bit more hawkish on this than you as, as we've, we've discussed. And I do think that you, you run into some, I mean, this, the real, the real fear, I think a lot of Hollywood people have, and I think it's a reasonable one is the dangers of self-censorship, right? The idea that we can't tell certain stories. Um, and not just that we can't tell certain stories for the Chinese market, but that if we tell certain stories at all, our whole studio slate will be blacklisted. Right. Like there's no you're nobody's going to make Red Corner now. Nobody's going to make seven years in Tibet. Well, Net- um, Netflix could. I mean, a, a company that has no China interest could go do it. Well, I was I was I was I wanted to ask you about that because it, 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 Netflix's absence in China is kind of the most striking thing about the Chinese film market right now. I mean, Netflix is arguably the biggest single studio in the world um, and they have no footprint in China. And I, I'm curious how that uh either a freeze them or b makes them worry because you know if you're going if you're if you're a business you're always trying to grow and that's the last market left to grow into well what are what are we going to do to get in there well i obviously i don't work at netflix so i don't know exactly what the strategy is but i can tell you what i i think it is right be um if i go back five years ago i had lots of meetings with very very senior people at the four seasons from Netflix that would come down from San Francisco and be like, how do we get into the China market? And we'd introduce them to certain players and we'd start that process. Um, I think over time, it started to be obvious that the bats, you know, the Baidu and the Tencents, the Alibabas sort of have a stranglehold on, on that type of business, right? And they have full support of the CCP behind it. And they have access to the best content around the world. So it's not like, oh, only, you know, the only way we can see great Netflix type of content is to allow Netflix in, which was sort of the argument about bringing, allowing the Hollywood studios to come in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, my belief is that Netflix started to realize that's a lost cause. Let's focus everywhere else in the world. There's plenty of scalability in that. And it seems to be what they've been doing. And it was punctuated to me as a gut, A, mainly because I wasn't getting phone calls about them wanting to figure it out anymore. Um, and I'm assuming others that were good at that stuff weren't mm-hmm. getting calls. But it was punctuated by that one child policy documentary that came out last mm-hmm. year that was essentially tackling a, pro- a, 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 a part of uh, you know, sensitive narrative that's really in the same realm as, you know, Tiananmen Square and Tibet and Taiwan. So they went out and made, well, I don't know if they acquired it or made it, but they released it and they didn't, sure. they didn't care. Yeah. And I'm telling you right now, Disney wouldn't do that and Universal wouldn't do that, nor would Warner Brothers. So I think that was a good sign that Netflix is like, screw it. We're just going to focus on great content and not worry about China. Interesting. Well, it, what uh, the the question I always try to to end with is it, what what is there that uh, my listeners should know about China and the business of Hollywood in China? What what haven't we talked about that you think people should be aware of? Well, what look, there's so much 
tension between the two countries right now. And there's so much red meat being thrown around by either the right or the left about how China's evil and terrible and all that kind of stuff. And we need to decouple. My point of view is this, right? We help build China into the market they are today. The same way Europe helped build the US into the market it was in the early 1800s. And the US used a lot of the tactics that China does now, which is like protectionist policies, tariffs. We stole a lot of IP from Europe back then to create our industrial revolution. Alexander Hamilton, who everybody hails as a hero, and he is, but he was doing a lot of that stuff too to help us get our industrial revolution and to catch up to speed with the Europeans as quickly as possible. Well, China has done that too. And Europe eventually got put, you know, it said enough is enough. And they pushed back on us and said, you can't do this anymore. Can't do that anymore. You can't steal all that kind of stuff. Well, we need to do the same thing with China. And my point is with that is that I do not want to decouple from China. And I definitely want to keep the exchange of commerce and culture alive. Commerce is important because there's money to make there. We help them build that market. Now let's get our money out of it. Culture, though, is beyond a transaction. Culture is a glue that keeps human-to-human -human contact alive. It keeps collaboration alive, camaraderie, that ability to bridge different cultures and create a glue between them. Because at this point, China is a superpower. We are a superpower. If we do not get along with each other and we slip into a Cold War, that is an environment none of us want to have. And I know there's all kinds of arguments that we are in a Cold War, but I am sorry, we are not in a Cold War right now. A Cold War is what we have with the USSR, where we had literally no trade, very little dialogue, and no interaction really between the two countries. And we just started building up arms all over the world, ready to bomb each other. China, we are an entangled mess with them. Supply chains, trade, investment, capital markets, you name it, we are entangled. So we are not in a Cold War. Now, the Cold War would disentangle all that. And if it does happen, we will find nothing in common between that other superpower. And we will enter an arms race that sort of finds a lot of terrible similarities to that same arms race we had in the 80s, which led to a movie the week that I saw called The Day After, which I still have nightmares about. And I don't <laughs> want my two 13-year-olds to be thinking about that kind of stuff. So yeah. let's keep commerce and culture alive. Let's realize that human rights issues, politics, national security, we're not going to see eye to eye with them on, but we need to slowly try to win them over on certain things. And let's realize the more we keep commerce and cultural exchange ongoing, the more we infiltrate that market with the values, the principles, the Western democracy ideals with every product and service that gets in that market. And then on top of it, we get some money out of it, right? It's payback time. So that's the way I look at it. It's both capitalistic and also about what's best, I think, for the world and for America. But we need to address a lot of these imbalances now. We need to get our heads out of the sand and stop following the same course because soon their curfew is going to move from 3 a.m. to no curfew. And at a no curfew time, there's no putting the genie back in the bottle. Mm. 
Uh, Chris, thank you very much for being on the show this week. Really appreciate it. Uh, the the name of the book again is Feeding the Dragon. It's available on Amazon uh, and and booksellers everywhere. Uh, if you have any questions uh, for Chris, uh, your your Twitter handle is at at the Dragon Feeder. I'm loving it. I'm only a few months into that Feeder. thing, but it's grown fast. And uh, yeah. I'm, I sort of Im- I try to imitate some of the great dialogue you have on yours. So uh, you've been it's been great to have you um, somebody paying attention to this issue. I think you've been very fair with the criticism on it, both of my book, but then also of just how Hollywood has been in this, in this relationship. And I think we're on the very much the same page in regards to how it needs to get addressed in certain ways, whether you're a little more hawkish than I am, that doesn't matter. As long as both of us are out there making this conversation public and keeping it in the news cycle, that's all we can ask for. Yep. Uh, Thank you. Thank you again for being on. And uh, we will be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Coast Hollywood. Mm-hmm.